Great Bass Tennis Podcast, episode 111, Good Poker Hand. I'm Steve Smith, along with Andres Barbosa, who's been on with us before, a tennis teaching professional in Miami. And what we're going to do is take a moment or two and join the rest of the tennis world in honor Roger Federer, Roger Federer's retirement. It's crazy. I remember I watched him get to the finals of the Miami Open, playing Agassi, I remember watching him at Houston playing the year-end championships two years, so it's crazy how time has flown by. I was in Miami when he played Nadal. The very first time he played Nadal, and he lost. 2004? I wouldn't know the year, but... With, it wasn't the final, the the year before the final. Right, it wasn't the final, right. but in Federer, it never mentions it, but he really should not have played. He was a little under the weather. Um, but no, Roger Federer... Uh, did you get a chance to see the close? I think that uh, perhaps the tennis was, how would you say, it wasn't great tennis, but it was great theater, the setting. That was phenomenal. I mean, I was speaking to my friends today, just talking about how impressive of production it is to create the Labor Cup. I mean, you get these 12 guys, an amazing atmosphere, these phenomenal settings like the O2 Arena. And then just the drama of the whole thing. Like, you know, you basically had everybody only speaking about the first day. Yeah, and so. I, I don't think it's exhibition tennis. With the uh, the world, team world, the fact that they played sock and singles the same night that he played doubles, uh, I think that was a statement, like, let's get the horse ready to run. With the doubles, I do think, or I should say the Labor Cup, I think the format is, the scoring format is excellent for that, though. Uh, it's great for the excitement towards on the last day where every match counts for three on the last day. And I think they play with doubles tomorrow first. I heard that today. Um, I, I, I remember it being doubles last before, so I don't know if they purposely try to make the uh, doubles first tomorrow. But I guess we'll find out. I'm not sure, but you know, so many great thoughts went into designing it. But that's, that's probably the only place that I like the 10-point match tiebreaker. That's great. I, I think it's super for the for the Labor Cup. The tennis was enjoyable to watch, but it was uh, obviously like they're not going to play their best. Um, Roger hasn't played in a while. If you haven't been playing doubles, I think even when you're a lower level player, you know if you haven't been playing doubles. I mean, you're a player. The type of doubles we play up at the net. The Dallas did on the set on the sidelines. Uh, I never play doubles. I'm so slow at the net. It was interesting to see. Probably the best part of it. I think they had match point yesterday, right? And Federer. Yeah, he served. Yeah. He served to the ad court. Served. It looked like he was going for the ace on the line, and he just missed. But then he had like a millimeters. forehand that he just basically stumbled to, and then he walks over to the bench, and he goes, I hope they didn't replay that. As I looked like I was tripping over my own feet, so it was pretty funny. I mean, that's another great part about the Labor Cup is just the interactions between players and coach or players and players. Yeah, they're pretty witty, some of them. I mean, I think it's a little forced sometimes, like where they're seemingly having to have coach-player discussions. But uh, the Federer is pretty good. There was a great line a couple years ago with Nadal with a Tsitsipas where he's like, look, if you close fist, you stay. And any finger you put up otherwise, you cross. Because I guess they had confusion with their with their hand signals for doubles. So, so. But yeah, I mean, just getting that inner inside look during a tennis match, I think it's great. I went back and listened to a podcast we had. I think it's episode 53. 
but it was on Roger's 40th birthday. And it was just 40 points on Roger. I wrote those points down. We go back and cover a few of those. But you just think 24 years. I mean, that's a quarter of a century that he basically came in worldwide to everyone's living room. And, you know, I, I listened to a, a podcast this week. Um, David Law with Tennis Podcast interviewed Ivan Lubacek. And took some notes on that. Um, I think anyone could go back and listen to that amazing points that he made. But one thing he did say is that it, so many people around the world think they are the number one Roger Federer fan. Right. I did my best to honor Federer here with my 2004 Federer Houston shirt. So it's about the extent of my fandom. Well, I would tell people that, um, I mean, how can you not be a fan of Roger Federer? 19 years in a row, he was a fan favorite. Yep. 19 years in a row. Um, you, you know, you can search for a few hiccups in his career where maybe he broke a racket or... There was, in Miami. Yeah, exchange, uh, verbal exchange with an umpire. But, I mean, just as pure as a driven snow. I mean, amazing. But for me, I don't really consider myself a fan of tennis. Uh, very seldom do I, I really want someone to win. The, the, um, more of a student of the game than a fan. Although Jimmy Connors, James Scott Connors, could be a little obnoxious, but um, I heard Mary Carrillo say that uh, during the height of the tennis boom, the Muhammad Ali of tennis, that Connors, he may not have been the best player in the world, but he was the most most important. You know, he really uh, put people in the stands. And But one thing with Connors, not to take anything away with Jimmy Connors, but he won 109 tournaments. But some of them were from the Maverick surface or, uh, circuit, Maverick circuit that uh, Bill Reardon, his agent, late agent Bill Reardon, set up a, a, a tour. They certainly had some of the top players, but it, it was uh, run. Um, it was in opposition of the, the former WCT. So there were some tournaments that Connors had won that arguably you could say that, that it wasn't tier one. But at the same time, I mean, he... I think I looked this up recently. I think he played 58 career Grand Slams. He must have skipped 25, I believe, I, re- I saw. Like, oh, when yeah, you combine Australia and the French, well, I mean, how many of those 25 was he most likely going to be the favorite or a co-favorite? No, I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, tennis history is, is confusing. It, it's, it's not really right to just go with the majors. You're, before uh, Labor, Labor won in 62 the Grand Slam. He won the Grand Slam in 69. In between, he couldn't play um, because it was amateurs only. And if you turn pro, you couldn't play the Grand Slams. Jimmy Connors in 74, he's playing world team tennis for the Baltimore Banners. And because he was a contracted athlete, the French didn't allow him to play. So he didn't go back for five years. But yet, you know, there was, there was times, at least once, where maybe I would say more, the fact checker. I mean, he was, he's in the semis of the French. I mean, yeah, no, I mean, he's in, I remember when he was the year after he, uh, the year after his U S open run, he lost to Steak in five sets and he was up two sets to one. And I want to say a couple of years before, maybe the year of the U S open, he played Michael Chang. And I guess Chang was two years removed from his French open and they went to the fifth. Connors won the first point of the fifth set and walked off the court. Just basically, almost to say I won the last point and, and just walked off. But I mean, I mean, you got to think that 
those 25 slams that he played, he had to be at least co-favorite, I'd say 80% of them. I mean, then you, then you look at a guy like Borg. He played even less slams than Connors. So and Borg, uh, And he won 11. Well, your Vilas, not taking away from Vilas, your Vilas won the French. Borg played world team tennis. Um, he won the French uh, six times. He won Wimbledon five times. Retired at 26. He only played the Australian once. So, yeah, the, <laughs> it's kind of like with Monica Selich winning eight out of nine Grand Slams before she was attacked, stabbed. And you don't really hear much about Monica Selich anymore. So I don't really At like all. I don't really like the, the, the GOAT, the greatest of all time. Um, with Federer coming back to Connors being, you know, like the most important player at one time in history, certainly that could be argued as well. But one thing that might not be um, a comment that one would want to argue is that Roger Federer is the most beautiful player. Yeah, and he's just... Just the way he engaged the fans. I mean, I would probably say that, I mean, I had so many kids uh, in the last 24 hours, just literally, I saw on their social media, they're posting tributes to Federer. You know, I, I don't remember any player ever having that uh, attachment to fans. You know, maybe Agassi, but it seems like Federer is just at another level. I mean, it's uh, it was kind of cool to see the the mutual respect with, with Nadal and and all the guys on the team, right? Like they were really riveted watching the match, hoping that he could, you know, have one more story tale send off basically. So one thing with Fetter, um, TV show with Charlie Rose interviewed, he was very young, I think 22. And he asked him the same interview three times. How'd you improve so much? He said footwork. Um, I recently um, listened to a clip where he was asked, um, do you get tired of people just talking about your movement and your strokes? You know, I mean, being so graceful and elegant, both. And they don't talk enough about your resiliency and your grit. And he goes, yeah, that does bother me. Because you don't, you don't win as much as he did unless you're one tough cookie. It's kind of crazy with his, how phenomenal his movement was, how effortless it was. And it seemed like well, I guess his first knee injury was in Australia, right? Where in the semis that one year, but then he had like two separate injuries that happened at Wimbledon, where where he basically slipped on the grass. I think once with Chilich, and then once I guess last year with uh, Hercotch. But um, yeah, I mean the, the the one guy that was moving as if he was on like a ballet dancer, you know. I guess ultimately, you know, Father Time's undefeated and basically. Yeah, the late Vic Braden, who we talk about all the time, he did say that. Watching Federer is what, like watching ballet. Jim Klein, we're going to get Jim on the podcast, part of our alumni. He runs a club in Doylestown, PA, and he was really instrumental in knocking on doors, writing letters to get uh, Braden into the Hall of Fame, International Tennis Hall of Fame. So Jim sends me a video one time. He goes, your students really need to see this. They just love this tape. So he says it to me, and it's, it's, if the listeners, is certainly if you've been at a tournament like Indian Wells or the US Open, and you see Roger on a day off, he's at the service line and the way he's, the way he's hitting, right. it's, that's what it was. It was Federer hitting at the service line. And, you know, he's not moving his feet. He's just, it's, he's not hitting the ball the way he plays. But so I called Klein up. I go, I'm missing the point. He goes, 
throughout the whole tape, anytime he has to run, he never lets the ball bounce twice. He just takes off. And um, his mother, his first boss, Lynette, that was her rule. That was her tennis rule. Never let a ball bounce twice. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that the first match in Miami, or the first time you saw him was in Miami. I actually saw him. No, no, ago. I had seen him before that, but it was I, I was there when it was the young Nadal. Oh, the first Nadal match. First well, Nadal I match. remember watching him play the Orange Bowl, where I believe the semis was, whew, I want to say he played Guillermo Coria, and I want to say it was Feliciano Lopez. Now it's killing me. And Fernando Gonzalez, I want to say. So, Corey, he was so fast. I used to love to watch him play. Um, I heard Roger say this in an interview where, you know, no one knows what's going to happen in the future. But I was at both the Eddie here and the Orange Bowl when he won it. But, you know, sometimes you just don't pay attention. You're, you're with other kids and you've got to get them from one site to the next. And, you know, you just, you, I was not in a position to just zero in. And lock in a great, let me really watch this player. People ask me all the time about a player. And um, I'd like to say Marcus Giron, he's on TV tonight with Daniel Evans. And I've taken time, so okay, I'm going to watch Evans play. Um, one time at Saddlebrook, I was asked to run the practice. and He was very unhappy, and his coach was unhappy. And um, I remember just, okay, the drill I started was, okay, well, Feed the ball in, play an underspin approach shot, play it out. One-handed backhand approach shot. So did some drills that he liked. But, yeah, so um, Marcus Giron is a great, great player. I really haven't zeroed in watched him play. I know he's played some tournaments, some doubles. He won a couple doubles tournaments. Or I should say now because he's on top and still playing. My son had a chance to play with him in some tournaments. But the Fed, uh, what about his tactics? Yeah, well, it was interesting watching uh, watching the his him speak yesterday. He basically, I think, he first began to tear up when he mentioned Stefan Edberg, and I definitely feel that when Edberg came on board in 2015, give or take, he really got Federer to come back to use a serve and volley when he would serve against the you know the Murrays, the Novaks. And then the dolls basically at least to make the guy think that you just can't hit every return deep middle. So I don't know the exact stats. I mean, but I would definitely say that it was at least a third of the time that he was doing it. And it really tipped the scales back in his favor where, you know, I know early in his career, he served and volleyed exclusively. And then he went the other way, the other route and basically did it very infrequently. So, yeah, you have to talk about the grass changing now, Bandy and then Hewitt, the first year, it was not one serve volley point. I think most people saw the interview with Pete Sampras. It reminds me of Alcaraz because at 19, um, Federer beat um, in that famous match at Wimbledon in five sets. Right. But there was a time where he played five Wimbledons collectively, you know, five fortnights in a row, where in total he came to the net less than he did that match. I guess in that sense, it's kill or be killed because the other person's coming in. He did say the other day um, that he doesn't think serve and volley will come back. What's interesting, because he did lose once at Wimbledon to, I don't know the year now, but didn't he lose to Stakowski? 
the yeah. Ukrainian. Yeah. And I believe he was serving volume exclusively. So, you know, it's just, you know, I'm not going to bash Federer on, uh, on the Federer podcast, but it would have been interesting to see him play in, in other eras where he was going to be forced to hit more backhand returns and not just get away with blocking it back. But people listen carefully. Federer bashes Federer. When he asked him, with Edberg, he was asked, um, why don't you come in even more like Edberg did? He said, if I volleyed like Edberg, I would. Right. And if people go to the tennis mass, I mean, Stefan Edberg, especially on the backhand volley, I mean, it's just out of a textbook. Backhand anything. Yeah. A, there was a great clip on YouTube where Edberg was practicing with Federer at the Indian Wells. I mean, the guy was still hitting as clean as could be. So, yeah, it's two beautiful players. It's just, uh, but it was, that was the first time I watched him choke up. Obviously he choked up quite a bit when he spoke about his family, but the very first one is when he mentioned, uh, mentioned Rocket. and basically he, he went and he went on to talk about how, how much he valued a team. So I think he really appreciated all the years, you know, the, the team that he had, be it Edberg, Luthi, um, the, the French guy that was his physical fitness, the guy that prepared him, obviously his wife, you know, he really appreciated that, that tight knit group, you know, and I, he probably was remembering all the other, all the other combinations. Obviously he finished with Lubitschik. Obviously Tony Godzik was a huge part of his team. So, you know, with, but, with Godzik, um, it's great to see how, uh, Mary Jo Fernandez and Gotsik, their son, is he's at Stanford now. He's doing well. I mean, he's he got second round of the U.S. Open and doubles. Yeah, right? he's playing the U.S. Open and with uh, that, that's not easy. With Gotsik, uh, he tells a story that he's, he says just he's dri- driving in bed with Federer. And Federer said, You know, it's just not right that I've made, I can make more money in one exhibition than Rod Laver played his whole career. I think that was one of the seeds, one of the, the, the plant that grew the Labor Cup. I am going to be one of the first to mention it, but uh, I forgot how many years ago already. But the the league that was created by Mahesh Bhupati, yeah, the IPTL was it, and I really hope that Labor Cup morphs into something like that where they bring back a legend. I want to see legends playing. I want to see Federer playing. I want to see Nadal playing. I want to see, let's say, once they retire, obviously, you know, then the current player. Then, you you know, back that, that had Agassi playing. That had mixed doubles. I want to see something along those lines. But uh, I'm probably being a little bit demanding here. But because uh, I love watching the Labor Cup. But, um, you know, Maybe 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 it'll switch. Maybe the teams will be, but right now it seems very skewed towards Team Europe. So it might be a great way to, or maybe it'd be a separate event that they create. You know, you know years ago, John Diaga, South African, he spent not very much time, but he spent time um, at my tennis school. But definitely uh, another South African who spent seven years with us, Craig Tiley. Diaga did a lot of things with Tiley, but I think. It's a safe bet if you go to Diaga's Facebook page. He was the coach of the team in that uh, that Indian right. uh, event, what was it, league I exhibition. It was IP, I think it was IPTL. Yeah. Um, so, anyway, it's a pretty safe bet that 
understandably, you go to his Facebook page, and he was Roger Federer's coach. Might have just been for a little bit more than an elevator ride, but uh, with Federer and tactics, Lubacek in, said that uh, in this podcast, again, David Law, tennis podcast, it's only like 30 minutes. Three things. He had to stay closer to the baseline, had to hit a topspin backhand, had to go to the net more. And, you know, Federer is one who said probably the, the best 20 minutes of his tennis career, the type of tennis that was played. That was such you think, a high level. You think of 2017, Nadal, Federer. And the, the doubles the other night was, uh, uh, you know, when, when Nadal won the gold medal, he's, he himself said, what a fluke. Uh, great competitor, but... Um, in Rio, right? With uh, Mark Lopez? Yeah, with that, you know, that's what he said about his his gold medal. What a fluke. You know, so happy to win and, you know, not, you know, hasn't really dedicated that much to his uh, career to, in, in doubles. Um, but it's a different story with Warinka and, and Federer when they played doubles. As far as, um, and again, I would be the first one to raise my hand and go, I would have never bet on Jack Sock to be the doubles player he is, even though he's got an amazing serve. And I think he's from Nebraska. I think he can play safety for Nebraska. He's an athletic guy, big, strong. But just, you know, the way he plays doubles. But uh, there was Nadal and Lopez. I, I want to say they played the final when you're at Indian Wells against uh, Federer and Walrink. I can't remember who won the match. But, uh, you know, it wasn't like that. That team of Nadal Lopez was, you know, was getting getting by with smoke and mirrors. I mean, they were they were playing a lot of eye. They were basically, and it was kind of a fascinating yeah. eye in the sense that Nadal would stay back, and it would be basically to make sure he was setting up a forehand first. So he'd, if he was on the if he was on the ad, he would shuffle immediately into the do side to smack a forehand. It was it was a different way of playing tennis that I had not seen Ivy played before. So it was kind of a, yeah, I think tennis people need to stop and think, okay, let's go through this. It's not a series. It's not like it's head to head where it's best of seven. Right. It is in baseball, world series, foot, uh, not football, but uh, basketball, hockey. That's where you go back to the, the barnstorming days. Can you imagine the level of play? If you take, um, and it's, 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 it's sad that Murray with his didn't, didn't remain healthy because if you look at the head to head, Murray's, he may only have, uh, what, three grand slams, two gold medals, but head-to-head, he's got lots of wins over the big three. Well, I mean, if we're going to go down the injury route, uh, Juan Martin Del Potro has got uh, yeah. quite the, he might have a better head-to-head against some of those guys than uh, than Murray. So, you know, yeah, the injury bug, I had a friend that was mentioning to me earlier about, you know, how the modern player is now able to play to their forty in Federer's case. And I kind of sat back and I was thinking to myself, sure, I'm sure there's advancements in medicine and stuff, but I mean, there's been a, a lot of players in the last decade or so that had their careers end early because of injuries. You had Del Potro who got probably played more than a lot of the other ones, but you had Google, uh, Gustavo Kirton, you had, Leighton Hewitt that had a lot of injuries with his toes. You had Safin's knee that uh, you had Magnus Norman, who was two in the world that had hip surgery. So Tommy Oz 
two, two number two in the world, two shoulder operations same but year. But at least he played. I mean, some of these other guys were were done relatively before thirty. So, you know, and then then I was thinking about the fact that at least nowadays there's a protected ranking. You know, you don't need to start from zero. I'll never forget when I was. I don't know, 20, and I played a pre-qualifying for the Miami Open. Back then it was a Lipton, and Ronald Agenor was there playing, and he actually won the pre-quali, got a wild card into the qualifying, qualified, and basically, uh, I, I want to say won a match in the main draw, but he basically went from zero, or back then it was, I guess, like 1,500 or whatever, and he made himself back into the, I want to say, top 100 when he was about 35, which back then was no one had ever done that before. So now, you know, not to diminish it, but, you know, it is a little easier now. You, you're injured more than six months, and you get, I forget how many tournaments, maybe eight tournaments at a protected ranking. So, you know, if we talk back historically, some of these guys, it's a little bit unfortunate that, you know, that they've played less tournaments you know, a guy like Nadal, a guy like Federer for the last maybe five, eight years, they've been playing about 15 tournaments a year. You know, they, they start off in Australia. They might play like Acapulco, Dubai. Then they play the, the Master Series in the States, and they play the clay ones, and they play one before the Open, and maybe a, two indoors at the end, and that's it. We're back in the day, wasn't a minimum of 18 that you had to play, and then wasn't Borg prevented from from coming back when you retired because they said you had to play a full slate of tournaments or else you didn't get the... Well, his, his age was Mark McCormick, the late Mark McCormick. With, uh reminds me of one thought, Arnold Palmer, with markability, likability, that um, I think I, I read that with Tony Gottsick. They would like to have... Um, Roger being the being the public guy as long as Arnold Palmer, but with um, but that's digressing. We go back to the point where you're on. No, no, we were just talking about injuries and um, oh Borg. I'm sorry, and, and yeah. Borg and the, and the tournaments. So yeah, senior, senior moment. So Mark McCormick um, said, "We'll just get you a, a wild card." And at that time, there was no such thing as a wild card because if you win the Masters, for example, you're in the Masters for life. And then Borg, he didn't want to qualify. Um, and, you know, he stayed out for a while. And um, I've heard so, so many things about Borg. So say, for example, if someone, I heard someone say, well, if you climbed Mount Everest five times in a row, like winning Wimbledon five times in a row, do you, someone going to ask you, you're going to climb it a sixth time? Right. Um, with, um, it's interesting on the sideline with Borg, uh, Versus Macron, the personality you can still see that right. from a coaching standpoint. He's so he just <laughs> claps and walks away. Kind of, I'd love to see him say something, but it seems like he's accepted his role and just takes a back seat. But yeah, and they, and they love it. He just tells, "I love you guys. This is awesome." Yeah, he's the first one to go out there and give a hug. That's pretty cool. But uh, but one thing at those events, you know, I think they really played up here in the states on the tennis channel from the coaching coaching standpoint. Totally. Of course, we don't know in the public that you know how much coaching is going on behind the scenes. But you know, typically, you know, Davis Cup tie the the players they have their own they all have their own coaches, and you know it's always good to 
get some inputs from some other players. But, uh, you know, Bertini today, when you know, he was asked, you know, Federer's coaching him, and he's just, you know, he's kind of starstruck going, I can't believe Roger Federer's talking to me while I'm playing this match. Because he just, he said that he just idolized the guy. Such a humble guy, Federer. He even goes off and grabs a couple water bottles for for Novak. That was a it was a replayed moment that I saw on on Instagram a few today. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I doubt we'll ever see someone like him because he just you know always seemed to say the right thing, always seemed to say and do the right thing. It was never a you know, and obviously it was a beautiful game style to watch, but it was just, uh, you know, it's unfortunate that you weren't able to see one more, one more run, you know, basically at, at Wimbledon this year when they had all the former greats that came out, you know, forget about the fact that all the players that didn't show up, you know, you had all the, you know, Pete Sampras didn't show up and Connors didn't show up. You had so many guys that didn't show up. And then you see a guy like him that, I mean, it was like a rock star moment when he came. Yeah, yeah. Came on last, too. He came on last. But, I mean, it was, you know, it's unfortunate. I, I kind of wanted to see one more run. But, uh, you know, he had 20, 20 plus years. I guess you got to be uh, thankful for, for what he gave you. 2012 Olympics in London. Um, they had to set up a tent, a, a venue would seat 400 journalists. But with Federer, they had to have a place for 4,000. It's that big. Uh, there's a few times where I think Roger was a little bit off course. This is very slight. Martina Naratilova said, I believe it was Roger who was stuck. At, he was stuck at 17 for a long time. You know, he didn't need several Grand Slams went by and he was 17, 17, 17. And she said, I don't see him winning another Grand Slam. And she had had tried to climb the mountain, um, Japan, uh, kill a uh, Kilimanjaro. Yeah, kill Kilimanjaro. So, anyway, um, Roger said she must have got a little brain damage when she went that high up in the mountain. <laughs> oh, uh, I didn't hear that. Yeah, she was. Uh, but, but you, there are sometimes with the journalists, you know, they just and obviously Naratilova, what a great, great player. But you know, she is in the seat of a journalist or or the media. And to make a comment like that, she made a comment yesterday about uh, I guess Agassi when he when Federer was quite young. You know, I guess number one junior in the world, but transitioning into the pros, he said, "I don't think that backhand is going to make it because is I forgot the word that was either the sweet spot or the pocket wasn't big enough for him to hit a, a consistently great shot." You know, Martina comes out and says, "Oh, I knew I knew all along that it was going to be a great backhand." So I mean, he's kind of curious from your own experience about how, you know, how long does it take for a one-hander to really fully blossom? You know, sometimes there's strength issues, you know, you obviously you had guys like, uh, Edberg who switched at 15, I believe, you know, and then two years later he was a junior grand slam champion, but, uh, it'd be kind of interesting to see. It seems like the one-hander seemed to progress a little bit more, in their late teen years because the backhand's only going to get better as they get stronger. So no, it's always an interesting question. When does someone start hitting a one-hander? Justine Hennen, great player from Belgium. She always played one-handed and they asked her how to go. She said, I lost a lot. You know, of course, you know, a lot of the kids who play one-handed, they end up slicing, running around their backhand. 
hitting forehands with, I mean, what a beautiful shot. Arguably most aesthetically appealing shot is a one-hander. I do think if you went back to Michael Chang, who was top 10 in the world, and he's the same age as Sampras, one was more of a baseline player, Chang, and one was more of an all-court player. And I do think that most people would agree it takes longer to develop an all-court player. With, um, but this, look at Alcarez. I mean, he's an all-court player. Um, so it's, it's really interesting. I think it's a case study player by player. Um, but with the one-handed backhand, um, you know, Uncle Tony, you know, he one time was it was picked up and it was on the wire where he said, Roger's playing so dumb. And, you know, he was running around his backhand to hit his forehand into Nadal's lefty forehand. And then Djokovic comes along and he's got that unbelievable two-hander. But Roger, I think if they hadn't changed the grass at Wimbledon, but I do even think yesterday in the Labor Cup when he played doubles, you know, he hasn't been playing. And he served and stayed back most of the time. Now, if, you know, Rogers would say, well, why, why didn't you volley more? He, he one time said he had the dream of winning Wimbledon serving volleying on every ball. But he simply said, I always had more confidence in my forehand than I did in my volleys. But I think, you know, he has that Aussie influence from Peter Carter. And then he worked with uh, Tony, Roach. Tony Roach. And, you know, the Australians argue... Maybe they don't have, maybe they just need to boast, you know, with what they accomplished in the fifties and sixties is the best tennis nation ever. You know, there's so many factors to that. The American players at that time, they were slowing down by the Vietnam war. Um, with with the the Aussies were, um, you know, traveling the world at a very, very young age playing tennis full time. And the Americans at that time were not way back when, but, um, no, the, the, the principle of playing doubles the right way. And you know, with, you know, I could, you know, take Roger Federer's point in singles. It's, you know, it's highly doubtful that there's going to be someone who's going to be a pure serum volleyer. But to this day, I'm not convinced that the best team should be the team attacking the net. I mean, I think as far as yesterday, I think he was a little bit, I think it was pretty genuine, the comment at the end when he said, hey, I thought I'd be, you know, pulling my back or or my calf could go. So I think part of it might have had to do. I mean, it didn't even look like he was pushing off that much off his knee in the second set when I was really watching. It didn't look like he was really going all out. But uh, I remember when, when they won the Davis Cup. I want to say that they, they hired um, McPherson. The uh, Brian yeah, Brothers did, coach to good memory, yeah, they did to help them, um, you know, practice some doubles patterns. To I'm assuming it was more for Stan, but um, but maybe just for a team. But and I want to say they 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 clinched it with the doubles, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, they. So there, there was a time where uh, Federer was. I'm not sure who he's playing against, but he was playing against the Brian Brothers in doubles. He was really excited. Hey, we're going to get to play against the best players in the world. I would imagine it would be Stan. I can't imagine it was, he played with anybody else, but uh, I guess he did play with like Eves Allegro at, early on in his career. But uh, there's a funny story about Jack Sock. Jack Sock wins Kalamazoo. He won in the 16s. He won in a bunch. He, he's someone who's a gamer. He played high school tennis, was 80 and 0. 
He always played his age group, won tons and tons of gold balls. So Roger Federer didn't know really who he was at that time. So he, although Roger does, um, Brad Gilbert shared that with the public one time, that Roger's checking out the futures and all the upcoming players. But So it's at the U.S. Open, and Jack Sock won Kalamazoo singles, so he's in this main draw singles, but he's not in the doubles, but he has the right to be in the doubles. <coughs> Excuse me. He goes, he goes uh, right up to um, Federer in the player's lounge and said, hey, Roger, you're not playing doubles. I'm not playing doubles. Let's play doubles together. And he politely said, well, maybe next year. This year I'm just not going to play doubles. Yeah, it's interesting when you talk about his memory and his love of tennis. Uh, Riley Opelka was talking today about when uh, when Federer won his 100th career title. It was the same weekend, I guess, that uh, Riley Opelka won his first ATP title. I guess it was the New York Open. And, you know, Federer reached out to him, congratulating him, saying the first is the most important or it's the most one you remember for your whole life. And he knew, like, what happened in the final, what happened in the semi. So it's just amazing how that guy was just always tuned on, like, always turned on to think about tennis, constantly analyzing, viewing. You know, it's passion. a little bit of a lost art, I would say, like nowadays with most, a lot of kids. You know, it's it's tough to get them to sit there through a through a full match, you know, let alone – I wonder how many really were tuned in fully yesterday watching two sets in a you know in a match break or so. No, I'm really puzzled by that with young people not watching tennis. A side comment, Riley Opelka, my son Connor knows him, said, I love the guy, but I don't love it when he hugs me because <laughs> uh, my nose is right against his ribs. <laughs> guy, this guy, he's so huge, huh? That was interesting to see him on TV. Um, yeah, I heard it and realized he had hip surgery, so... This is going to be out until uh, the early part of next year. I'm a little bit sick with a little cough here, pardon me, but I think I'm a little sick because Federer is not playing anymore. Understood. It's, you know, uh, for me, I like to cheer for the person, talking about being a fan, though. Many times I'll tell people, I'm going to cheer for the person who I think is going to help tennis teaching the most. I always think of that line that you say because I remember calling you this year when I saw Sitsipas playing doubles in Miami with uh, Feliciano Lopez. I was stunned watching him play from the baseline, doubles from the baseline. Like, uh, and here you see a guy like Feliciano Lopez, it's real, playing real doubles, and Sitsipas playing from the baseline. I'm thinking, poor Steve, the one guy that he's uh, banking on for the future and uh, letting him down. With a coach from Greece called me up, and we talked just a couple times. He's a couple of years older, I think four years older than Tizzy Paz. But he started following our content, Great Base, Great Base Initiative, uh, whatever, Tennis Intelligence Supply, the courses we have, and said that their first coach taught them out of Braden's book. Oh, really? Yeah, you definitely can see it. I mean, he's got that wandering toss, but um, with, no, I think of uh, Ashen Kruger, young American player. She, I think she's just 18 now, but she won the Orange Bowl twice. She won the U.S. Nationals. And, you know, she's trying to make her way in pro tennis. And she was coached, um, for, I guess, from the age of, like, 6 to 15 by Dave Anderson. And there was three years. She's back there working with her, working with him now. But, uh, you know, she went all that time serving volume, you know, age 6 to age 15. 
toughest thing in tennis and doubles is to find a partner who serves in volleys. Uh, Dave Secker, who's on the podcast, uh, has his girls, for the most part, coming in on the second ball. Just go to the net. You do the geometry. I mean, you do the stats. I mean, go to the net. You know, one of the problems, though, is that um, players going into college, for example, their their ground strokes are better than their volleys. Right. And, well, we want to win now. And that, you know, it's really you're better off to win later i do think coming back to federer that and he's five years older than nadal he said there's no way i was that mature at age 18 and you know there's been a lot written where um his wife is very similar to his mother and that she really helped him with his discipline she was a pro player and yeah i heard yesterday that uh mirka was coached as a as a child by uh, Martina Navratilova's, I want to say father or coach. So there was, I want to say fathers, and that's. I'm not sure. I, I from what I've connection. from her, there is a connection where she was taken to a, a tournament exhibition. You know, it was a lot of times at a pro event, you can hit some balls, and um, Martina Navratilova did tell her, "Hey, um, um, his wife is from Slovakia." But, Years ago, Czechoslovakia, the two countries combined. Um, I'm not sure where that took place, but um, yeah, she's um, from originally from Slovakia. I think that also really helps to have a life partner who really understands what it takes to be, be an athlete. I think with Roger, um, got this written down. Um, I think this is so important you have the right coaches at the right time. Now we had a young player flying here from New York today and um, from the, from the city. And, you know, he's a very good tennis player. You know, he's going to be able to play. One of our coaches would like to have him come to his, his school to division three school. And um, just watching him play today, we did some filming. I haven't really got it going with instruction yet, but um. Do you change or do you not change? And um, so the right coach at the right time, you know, he he obviously didn't really work with a technician at a really young age. All you have to do is look at the grips and the shape of the swings. But the way the brain works, I think everybody should really understand that, is that myelin, uh, you asked me, uh, we talked a little bit about Alcarez's serve. Right. Is, you know, he has... He, like Roger Federer, Roger Federer has a, has a hitch. He doesn't have a continuous motion. But people will hear that and go, well, you're saying Roger Federer doesn't have a very good serve. No, I think you do have to get to a certain point where you're going with what you got. You don't change for the, change for the sake of change. But at the same time, there's such a, a great, it's, va- it's vast, the difference between someone who's trying to play Division three college tennis or someone who's already at, say, 15 playing Futures. So, um, yeah, how people start, you know, <laughs> excuse me, not even, not just how they start, but, but where they start. Um, I mean, well, Federer started with, well, obviously Peter Carter passed away and then he had Peter Lundgren. Well, you go way back. He had the Czech, um, Adolf Kowalski. They call right. him, uh, Seppi Seppli. You know, they said for years and years, you think so much would be written about him and, I, I've said this so many times, people are tired of hearing it, is that 
Lynette Fetter said when he was eight years old, his lessons were one hour long. He stood in one place on balance with long fall-throughs. And people need to hear that. Right. You know, with, and she, she started to play in tennis late, but then she, she represented Switzerland in an inner, inner club, uh, one country playing another country. I mean, she got so she could play. And she's an Afrikaner. And so I read, start reading all these things into a disciplinarian. Um, and she was a volunteer coach in this one biography. It'd be interesting if Fetter writes, you know, eventually I'm sure he would, would write an autobiography. There's a lot of, bi- there's several biographies, but one where she was a volunteer and they said, well, why didn't you teach your son? She said, no, I was just a helper. I was incompetent. Yeah, this honesty is, but yeah. So then Peter Carter, who taught by Peter Smith, he hit the ball really well. Not a lot of firepower. You can actually dig it out on YouTube and watch him hit the ball. Yeah, so I saw a training session with him, and I guess Better was still a teenager. And, um, yeah, you know, he, he says with personality as well. You know, he really influenced him not only in tennis but in life. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw saw where he spoke about it. I guess every year when he goes to Australia, he invites the family yeah. to spend the two weeks with him. And, you know, to this day when he would speak, he gets choked up. I mean, it's beautiful watching him speak about his, uh, his former mentor. So, But then he went, but, but Federer had a lot of coaches in his career. When you think about, you know, some of the other great players in history, right? Let's say like Nadal's basically had a couple. Novak has maybe a few more. Maybe he had uh, Marian Vida. Oh, I think you, you you look it up. I mean, he had Todd Martin at one point. So yeah, but I mean, brought, but, brought, but brought, you had but you had Federer with. I mean, Peter Carter, Peter Lundgren. Uh, then he went Paul Anacone. Paul Anacone. Then he went uh, Higueras. Then he went uh, obviously Severin Luthi. Then he had. Um, I think Luthi was just more fitness, right? Like, but he, he was in on the no, tennis. No, well, I mean, it was the Davis Cup captain for, yeah. for Switzerland. So basically. Uh, I'm probably missing a couple here. Obviously, Lubitschek at the end, Edberg. I do think so, uh, Dimitrov, he had seven in seven years. All right. I mean, he might have been copying. Uh, but no, I, I mean, with Fed, I think that, uh, you know, there was a time, too, where he was, he, he went, uh, I mean, I don't know, it was 18 months. He went a long time without a coach. Without a coach. I think that... Um, how how much does one actually coach? I mean, Lubitschek has his own academy. You know, we we in the public we don't know. Right. Um, a lot of times, how many weeks out of the year? I mean, is, is it? I mean, is, is it's not a fifty-two week arrangement contract, but you know, sometimes the coaches are just going to the slams. I like the story about um, Novak Djokovic hired Feedback, the Polish player, right? Who coached Lendl and coached Lendl and life and business and such, but tennis. And they said, why did you hire feedback as a consultant? Because I want to find out what he's telling, you know, Andy Murray. What, Andy, what Lendl's telling Andy Murray. Um, I mean, that, I mean, it's actually amazing when you think about Tony Roach, the length of time that he spent coaching great players in pro tennis. I mean, obviously you have Roger Federer, then you go backwards and you had Leighton Hewitt, then you go back a little more, you had Pat Rafter, 
And you go back, and he had Yvonne Lendl. I'm assuming Lendl was probably his first guy. But, um, yeah, that's – that probably – you know, what he probably started with Lendl, what, in, in the 80s? I, I wouldn't know. I mean, that's a years. long time. That's a long time to be at the very top of the game with uh, – you know, so it's interesting hearing you say, like, you know, feedback and, and Lendl. I mean, someone should really sit down there and really – you know, Tony Roach, that's one podcast I want to listen to. Someone's got to get him on a podcast, so he's got to have stories for days. With coaching, uh, Andy Brandy, who's part of my coaching tree, um, I worked for All American Sports, and I knew right away that Joe and Andy Brandy, they knew a lot more about tennis than uh, typically the, tip, the typical staff member of All American Sports. That may not sound very nice, but it was just, and I was so new to tennis and that's through, through uh, Joe and Andy. That's how I got connected with Welby Van Horn. But at one point, Tony Roach took some lessons from Andy Brandy and they, you know, it was a highlight of Andy's career where Tony Roach sent him a telegram, you know, thanks, thanks coach from Roach. Mm-hmm. It was helping with his top spin backhand. But the Aussies, uh, you know, just, you know, that Hopman era and even going back to Charlie Hollis, who was Labor's first coach. And, you know, just the you know, one lesson a week and you got to, you got to skip a thousand times a day. You don't get your lesson. And, um, you know, he was known for kicking the students out of the lesson if they weren't working hard and so many things that have gone away, like skipping rope, jumping rope. Um, but no, I think that from a historical standpoint, then if you're connected with Roach, you're connected with, you know, Newcomb and right. Rosewall, the whole gang. Just knowing that just the story, just to, um, I like Jim Lair's, uh the title of one of his books, Storytelling for Mental Toughness. So just to be in the room and just, you know, we had you, Steve, Steve Denton on the podcast. He talks about poaching. He's playing with Kevin Curran and, you know, their top doubles team, he gets out on the tour and he's just about to nail a sitter right at Roosevelt's chest, Roosevelt's chest, and it comes right back and hits hits Denton in the chest. You know, he thought he's going to peg Ken Roosevelt, right. and he just puts his hand up. Um, yeah, I think that's going back to the, the as great as those guys are, Federer and, and um, Nadal, to just jump into doubles like that with 17,000 people watching you. They're they weren't really prepared for that, right. but it was, again, it was a great show, but what, what happened afterwards? Um, I think it was a great send off. You, uh, I'm going to backtrack here. You mentioned, uh, John Newcomb a couple weeks ago, I went to a fantasy draft in, uh, Austin, Texas. And I went out to Lake, uh, New Brunfels. Yeah. And I had a secret. I was dying, hoping, hoping against hope that I'd get to walk inside and see John Newcomb, at the bar, so I could uh, sit and talk tennis with him. But uh, lo and behold, he's uh, apparently still in Australia. John Newcomb, the coaches used to love it when he was going to do demo on the topspin backhand because he really didn't have a very good topspin backhand back in those days. Three out of the four Grand Slams were on grass, and what a you know big time serve, big time forehand. We called it the buggy whip. You know, that's where like if you go back to Tom Ocker from the Netherlands, his forehand was the windmill. You know, big, you know, a, a vertical swing, loosen the shoulder. And um, it's almost like there's, 
there's nothing new out there, but at the very, very top of the game, I think with our listeners, um, Alcaraz, wow. You know, that level is unbelievable. We were, for me, it's a little bit doom and gloom is, you know, what's like happened to high school tennis in America and, you know, with, you know, junior players, they don't have a backboard to hit on. They don't have a ladder and, you know, they're not calling adults up. And so I think at the grassroots level, you know, that's where, you know, that's where we could help out with the body of work, the great base, which is all these different tennis teachers. But my uh, favorite Aussie story, one of my favorite is Dave Eddy, who invented the, the tennis tube. Right. He's about 10 years older than I am. And, you know, it was really at my, you know, entry point into tennis to, you know, I was just hitchhiking, you know, to my parents' house out on this uh, lake, Casanova Lake. And so Dave Eddy and I, he picked me up and, hey, you like tennis? We started knocking some balls around. He was a pro, a club pro. And I had no idea, okay, you can make a living as a club pro. So years later, down in Miami, where was it with the players practice, Connors and Garolitis? That Maybe. was in Aventura, Turnberry. Turnberry Isle, yeah. So uh, so I'm down there watching Stolly, and I said to Stolly, why do you, when you teach, why do you always teach off the racket? And he goes, because I'm still playing, mate. But Dave Eddy did just have a little bit of fun. He said to Stolly, he said, uh, you know, Steve is an authority on Vic Braden and Dennis Vandermeer. Stolly said, hey, send me your resume. I'll put it in file 13. <laughs> so I think, you know, Fetter, the humor, where's that come from? Uh, you know, you'd have to think Tony Roach, too. I mean, there's this, you know, he mentions Carter. I think the Aussies, uh, no worries, mate. That's, that's the first thing that comes to my mind with you think about Australian. No worries, mate. You know, let's have a beer. I do know a lot of college coaches that are a little reluctant to uh, recruit an Aussie because they're going to have a problem, especially the boys. You know, definitely the boys are going to have a problem with the beer drinking, mother's milk. Tailgating. Yeah. With, uh, yeah, the right coaches at the right time. You know, Federer, in recent days, he said, uh, the best players are the best movers. I mean, girls, 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 girls. If you're watching this Polish player, Switek, oh, my word. She is faster than fast. I mean, she is big time. Wheels, wheels, wheels. It's interesting watching that, um, one thing I was thinking about when I when I was when I heard Federer make that comment about about movement. Actually, the guy that came to my mind was Andy Murray. Now with his, uh, you know, with his redone hip, I'm amazed watching him play that he's still playing a counter counter punching style. Like I thought that that injury is going to force him to be even more aggressive than and endpoints sooner. Than what he's in, ended up doing. That's kind of one reason I was hoping to see Federer make one more run because I was really thinking he was going to be all systems go basically to try to end points relatively quickly. But you know, alas, we weren't able to see it. But well, hats off to Murray. I mean, Murray with a hip operation, more than one. I'm not sure. There's definitely one severe. I mean, he looks like a senior player out there, but he's still in there, and uh, and, he, and he's moving great. I mean, it's. Uh, I mean, I. When I was a teenager, I had a dislocated femur. And I have, to this day, three screws that are still in there. So I watch I watch him move, and I'm like, you know, the guy's it's amazing that he's able to get back to the level that he's at. But I've always felt that he was such a talented player coming forward that I was always shocked not watching him do it more, basically. And I thought, 
you know, here at this stage of his career, he couldn't, he didn't probably didn't want to, he probably doesn't want to get a replacement hip. You know, I thought he'd do everything in his power to basically uh, shorten points and hasn't been the case. I mean, he's basically out there pretty much playing the same style as before. With Matt Clore, who's been a guest on the podcast a couple of times and he's did a lot of things with us over the last 15 years. This, that, and the other thing with, I heard him say, uh, about top players. Like, so he spent a lot of time with me you know, around t- uh, Taylor Fritz or Francis TFO and Tommy Paul and they're outliers. You know, you think about, um, you know, they've just been on that stage and they know how to compete. I, I do think that, you know, just being an outsider, I'm guessing that one of the reasons they put Francis TFO in the doubles, oh, sure enough, he just had a good run at the US Open. He's serving, you know, he's got that elbow a little bit high and he hits, you know, um, in the ad court, he hits a slice um, up the middle very effectively, catching lines. and But he has no stage fright and he has a smile on his face and he, you know, you just think behind the scenes, that's okay. You know, playing against Federer and Nadal, everybody's watching. And it, it warmed Jack's up, uh, Jack's up by, Jack Sock up by putting him in a singles match. And then, um, you know, I know I've been talking a lot, many times to Raven Klassen is, um, they fear his forehand, obviously, Jack Sock's forehand. And you do the math, the RPMs that he's getting and people coming in with if the elbows in, the racket face is open with a continental grip. It's not very good math for the volleyer. A lot of downplay. Yeah, but I did notice that Federer, everybody said for years, I should say almost everybody, that he's such a great spot server. He was doing quite well um, serving the Sox backhand. With... Um, how, how do you think that would have ended if the last – they had match point he was serving if he had hit that sideline for an ace? I, I, I missed that one a bit. He had a forehand to end it down the line, and I guess he stumbled there and he couldn't make it. So when he switched sides, that's when he mentioned, I hope they didn't replay that because I really looked incredibly yeah. unathletic. Here's something I heard Fetter say. Um, you have to ask yourself, will that make you grow? Pretty good comment. I mean, you know, you know, Federer. I mean, okay, who's not going to listen to Roger Federer in the tennis community? You know, Roger Federer. If you if you can't volley, you're not going to go to the net. And say, this is what Roger says. And he, you know, Roger that. You know, the T-shirt, Roger that. Um, you know, I heard him also say that. You know, he's very proud of the fact that he went from being erratic to being consistent. The longevity. Mentioned that. And there's something else I wrote down that um, he said, fortunately, from a young age, I had a solid base. And you know, that's where, you know, See, great, don't be discouraged and try to change the solid fundamentals. Try to <laughs> stick with the great base title. With, um, give me a number, uh, one through 40. All right, let's. I feel like I'm playing roulette here. Let's go with number. Well, let's say you said 111 episode. Let's go with 11. Number 11. Yeah, 55 percent. Um, for the eight months leading into the U.S. Open, for X amount of years, I would guess it was five plus years. Federer and Nadal going into the U.S. Open, they won 55 percent of their points against their opponents. We're talking singles. 
55.2. And it was just ironic, interesting. I think, yeah, I think the ba- average baffling. is 53 for, for most matches that are... But, you know, people, people need to know that. You know, that's one thing about the scoring system. There was one time where Federer, a commentator, said about against Soderling at Wimbledon. He won comfortably. The difference in the match was seven points. Right. Um, but, but, no, that's where I think Roger, uh, you know, all those great guys, I mean, the word clutch. Well, it just shows also the, the difference that 2% makes, right? Like if the average is 53 for a win – and these guys are consistently chalking up 55, you know, they're pretty soon going to be lapping the field. So that, that, that is an impressive number. I, I didn't know that about 55%. Another time that Roger might have been a little bit off from his perfection, because he did say he partied after he won Wimbledon. He said, well, I made a mistake. He showed up, he was showered, and you know, clean as a whistle, prepared for an interview. But he just said, well, I stayed off out awful late last night. The mistake I made is I mixed my drinks. But he said during that interview, he said, it's frightening how low the level of play is at Wimbledon. I know that less than 2% of the time my opponents are coming in behind their serve. I think for the most part, he finds a way to, to take the high road and be positive, be classy. That's the one interesting part about, let's say when he made his, I guess his big splash at Wimbledon beating beating uh, Sampras. I mean, I, I don't know the stats for the match, but I just remember back in that in that day, it was very rare to ever see a guy serve better than fifty five percent for the match. Watching the U.S. Open, you see a guy like Kyrgios every single match. He's at seventy seventy one. I mean, he's consistently over seventy percent. I mean, it's it's incredible the serve that the guy's got. You know probably haven't been seen since Sampras and might be better than Sampras when you consider the percentage, but he always gives the guy a chance to float back a return, get back in the point. Now, granted, he's going to try to rip a forehand, rip a backhand, but it's, uh, I know you've made the point many times. Imagine if the guy could volley because basically, you know, the points would be done basically. Oh, Steve Denton has said that, and I mean, I remember watching Steve Denton serve and I, I mean, Vic Braden showed it twice a week. You know, they've been seeing him play in person and later getting them to, to meet and work with him. It, what he would say is he just he, he just couldn't back it up. Like Sampras, Sampras you know, the way he volleyed um, with, yeah, you know, I think that's something coming back to Alcarez's serve is that Curios, he's out to the right, you know, and it's just like, you know, how the, how the swing is formulated. The shoulder goes forward first, optonique reaction, then the elbow goes in. And how their racket, you know, if you're not tossing left, um, you know, the racket's going to go so much faster. You realign the racket, the racket slows down. And, um, but yeah, curious, the term stick a volley, get hit by a stick. He's not coming in and sticking the volley. Um, you know, there's, you know, you think about, I heard Pam Shriver say this, and there's definitely truth to it where, um, Borg, especially on the backhand volley, elbow down, open racket face. And on bad grass, uh, even Nisevich with his great lefty serve, he was like that. He would come in and uh, it can be very effective on, on bad grass to hit uh, a three-quarter court, a three-quarter, help me with my English, three-quarters court volley. They were talking about that today. Mm-hmm. Opelka was mentioning it. Uh, I forgot who I was watching him play today. Um, 
could have been the doubles. Might have been Djokovic match, but uh, they were talking about how effective the short volley is. And, you know, when I heard that, I was thinking of you, where I forgot who mentioned it to you that you said that we'll never see a volleyer like Pete Sampras again and how you uh, dread the thought of not being able to see a guy that can hit a... I heard, I heard v say that one time, we'll never see someone volley like Sampras again. And maybe that's just because Sampras is so talented, but they've got to understand, it's like center. Guy is a great player. If he could just flatten his racket face out on both sides, and the racket face is flat, you can go fast and forward. And, you know, the racket face is slightly open. And granted, there's times you have to have the racket face, so especially when the ball is below the level of the net. But to be able to drive the volley, you mentioned the Argentine um, Juan Martin, Martin Del Potro. Del Potro. The one Pam Schreiber said, or I should say the late Jack Kramer said, Pammy, you know, about the eastern grip on the forehand side. That's, that's, how, you that's how you hit a forehand. And that's where the term sledgehammer you know, you hit, it comes out like a sledgehammer. like Thor. I mean, he became, uh, everywhere you'd see the Thor hammer when Delpo crushed the forehand. But also, too, the, you know, um, two kids from Miami. One I worked with, our turnaround, uh, Evan and Nathan Zeter. Evan Zeter. is, um, one's in New real balance. estate and one's with New Balance. So, I mean, I was an elevator ride. I did a few things with the older brother, Nathan. Nathan. But Evan, he we have the film, he changed his game. And their father, those boys are tall. And their father is taller than taller than tall. And, you know, the guy walks in the room and the guy's six foot seven. You think, okay, I'm going to get these guys to go to the net. It's like Novotna, who unfortunately passed away at such a young age. She, um, her mother was always taking her to her gymnastics classes. And then her father had to take her one day and he's a really tall guy. They had a meeting and they said, you're out. And she became a tennis player. Um, so, yeah, but, e- but even if even if you're, um, yeah, it was people were brutal. She um, lost to uh, Graf where she had it won and they called her Yana Noshatna. But then later she came back and, and she, she cried. That's when she cried on the queen's uh, shoulder. Yeah, it wasn't the queen, but it no? was, it was, uh, it wasn't the queen. But, no, it wasn't the queen. You're right, right. right. But, uh, yeah. With, uh, but then, but yeah, uh, beautiful player. She comes to my mind when you think of us Federer. There's Krajika, uh, Krajik, Barbara Krajika, the one that won the French Open yeah. last year. She was basically molded by you right, know, right, which right. Is incredible, and she does have similarly beautiful game. I mean, it's just uh, yeah. Well, also just being around players. <coughs> Excuse me, just you know, visually learning. You know, show me. How's it go? Um, children, um, they close their ears to advice and they open their eyes to example. With Federer and an underspin backhand, um, we always talk about Naratulova, won Wimbledon nine times, and can we name nine players? Um, Novotna would be one, Sabatini would be another, Graf, who, who could actually play an underspin backhand approach. That's definitely a lost art in both men's and women's tennis. Um, but the Fed, um, with the analytics... You know, the story I heard, of, and again, it's second, it's not like it was read, but a friend of a friend, uh, a friend of Tony Godzik said that Roger, to use tennis analytics in 2019, he first said it's uh, too expensive, and Godzik said, well, I'll pay for it. Then he said, I don't want all those numbers in my head. But he did use tennis analytics, and I think now that you listen to him more in interviews, um, he was asked, you know, when do you look at stats? 
He said, the only time I look at stats is at Wimbledon when they interview me. They put the stats in front of the players, and we're, while we're waiting for the journalists to come in and, and get get settled for questioning or for questions, that's when you look at stats. And the follow-up question was, well, do you use your coach look at it? He said, no, no, we just go on hunches. Um, it's amazing, actually, that... Uh you know, that you would think that they'd look for, you know, tendencies and say, where does the serve go at 30 all? Or when you would think, you know, I can understand his logic in the sense that too much information in your head is probably not ideal, but you would think that you'd want to be looking out or just trying to pinpoint a couple of things as far as tendencies with the serve or, or with the passing shots and certain shots. That's, but I guess it's a little bit of an old school player in the sense that he basically – it's just going to feel like he can figure it out. You know, he's probably a guy that isn't in favor of, of coaching on the sideline. He wants to figure it out. Through uh, his own. through Steve Denton, I spent a lot of time around Bobby McKinley, top 50 player in the world, coach forever. His brother Chuck won Wimbledon. And that's expression from Malcolm Gladwell's book, um, Outliers, or no, Blink, Knowing Without Knowing. And you just, you know, some players, I mean, like a McKinley or Denton, they're not going to rattle off the tennis math uh, like someone who's a braid knight. But at the same time, they know, you know, hey, the racket face is open and they're going to have a very difficult time hitting down the line. Um, you know, I heard Elliot Telcher one time say about Pete Sampras that he would bait you. He'd just kind of hang over here saying, but hit it to my right. forehand, hit it to my forehand. But, you know, he had the, his six foot one frame and his, Short, short legs, I mean, really could move fast. And even though he had a great serve, three years in a row, the pros said the best shot in pro tennis was San Francisco's forehand. It's incredible for, to think that because uh, I got to see firsthand, I was at Fisher Island in about 97, and watching Agassi on court practice, and then watching Richie Rennenberg come out and practice, and then watching Sampras they had like a little, they would throw Gatorade caps on the court and they'd be betting how many Pete could hit. It was astounding how accurate he was. He just basically had six balls. He hit like four caps in a row. One of the craziest things I'd ever seen in my life when it came to his serve. And then to hear that players said the forehand was better, I mean, it's it's crazy to crazy to think. I think it was Harry Hopman. I know it was Harry Hopman. Definitely Harry Hopman. I think it was $100. I've heard this story be told it's $1,000. But he put a tennis ball can up. If you hit it, and then he put it up again. If you hit it the next time, he gave you $100. People really get into it. I've done this thing where you get people to drop hit lobs. You get all the balls on one side, and the teaching basket's empty on the other side, and they have to drop hit a ball. And it has to stay in the basket. You know, so... They're all of a sudden these follow throughs track upward because they're hitting a high lob, and if it stays in the basket, they get a hundred dollars. So I know I've lost four hundred dollars doing it. Oh yeah, yeah. It's got to stay in the basket. It's kind of fun sometimes where nine, ten year old wins it. You know, but, but you know you can do it. Bobby Knight, great basketball coach, intense. He has a great um, concept. He does a traveling clinic, and he has all the guys sprint from one end of the gym to the other and then he pretends that his watch is actually a stopwatch and it's not he says okay the fastest time was such and such we're going to do it again and the number of people get this get faster than this time i'll give every one of you a hundred dollars 
you know, he pulls some money out of his pocket and, and then they all go down and they all, they were like, they're totally into it. They're just, they're just ready to sprint. We're outing the guy. NCAA violation left and right here. So, so, so anyway, then there's no money given out. Then he just sits down and he just, he just goes, you phonies. I've got to do that to make you guys run. I don't want to coach any of you guys. And he's just like shocks him. So the fact that he didn't give any money out, I don't think he would have been. Reminds me of a great story that I heard now that we're sidetracked going to college basketball, but uh, Dean Smith, when he passed away, he he left every player that ever played for him. <laughs> I, I don't know the exact amount. He might have left every player that ever played for him 200 bucks. So they could all go to dinner on him and basically, and that was amazing because you would, you would always hear like Michael Jordan and James Worthy and all these guys, you know, speak so reverently about uh, about Dean Smith. And then basically when he passed away and and you heard that he had that one where I was, a, I remember when that happened, that was a really, uh, gave you the chills hearing that story, so. Anyway, we can go back to Federer. Yeah, yeah. We'll we? we go back to Federer. Uh, $100 bills. Uh, Mike Ditka was coaching. He, he wanted. He got this thing where he's going to start. Stop swearing. He goes, okay, guys, you hear me swear? Anytime I swear, I'll give you 100 bucks. Of course, you know, they're making a lot more money than they used to. So anyway, he calls a couple guys at his office, and he just gives them each $100 before he starts talking to them. <laughs> and then from that, from that point, I, I guess he drops. Yeah, back to Federer, Rob. Anyway, give me a couple more numbers, numbers here. Let's go. Let's go with twenty. He's got twenty slams. Let's go with twenty. With uh, he was asked uh, where he puts his money. He goes, "I'm Swiss. I put it in a bank." With uh, um, you know, at one point, you think of money. Um, he left his agency when he was really young. He left IMG, I believe it was, and. You could actually go to his website, and if you wanted to have any um, business transactions, I mean, you would you would just contact his his mother <laughs> early on, uh, because I just think that what happened with the family early on is they're thinking, well, the agent is taking too much, the percentage is too high, we'll do this on our own. But well, I, I mean, know that story. But then it's you know, I mean, now he's business partners with uh, Tony. Tony, now he's playing Tony Gotzik. He's um, you know, the other day he's playing against um, TFO. TFO is managed by Team Eight, at least he was, just like um, Coco Goff is. You see Coco Goff with uh, Patrick Mortagolu and his crew, um, but they're really more of just a sponsor. You know, or we'll give you this, we'll give you that. I don't really, you can't say I know the math behind that deal, but but she's being managed by uh, Team Eight. So I know that. with. Um, yeah, so I think Roger, uh, you know, will he still be in tennis? He, he said he said he will be, but I think also too, he's probably going to stay close to home. He's got some young kids, and uh, but I do think that um, he should have. You think he'd have even more time for um, marketing? Most of those top iconic players, when they have a photo shoot, you know, they'll have several companies at one time. Um, it, it's very time consuming, but you know, now that he won't you know, be uh, training to play the circuit. You may have more time to be, you know, well, do you in the think public that, eye that way. Uh, Newport, Rhode Island in uh, 2020, 
seven. Will we have Roger and Serena? I feel like Serena's going to play. It's going to come back. I thought she looked too good at the U.S. Open. To completely well, yeah. Away. With, uh, I think with Roger Federer, in all fairness to Serena, I mean, I could probably get in trouble for this, but with uh, when Wayne Gretzky retired, I don't think he had to wait the five years. Right. But they retired his number in the league. And um, Roger Federer, he's so humble. He'd be the last person who would want to have it done differently. So he probably wouldn't allow that. He'd say, no, 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 I don't want to do that. But, um, and again, I mean, Serena's done so much, but. Um, That'll be she, a pretty jam-packed weekend if it's Serena and uh, Sampras uh, and Federer that weekend. But with, um, yeah, she's already talked about coming back. Um, I don't think Federer will come back. No, no. You can play in the uh, 2027 Newport visit if you want to go cheer on Federer for your Hall of Fame speech. I know you're a fan of watching all the Hall of Fame speeches. No, definitely the history. The history. I think the juniors you need to need to watch those. Um, with just the passion. Um, you know, Sampras was um, you know very quiet, and you know I think the critics. Um, you know, he followed McEnroe and Connors, and they were looking for that type of show, and it, that was not him. But yet, he showed his passion. If you, if you just go to YouTube and put Pete Sampras International Tennis Hall of Fame, you know what the family did. It's it's really the the attitude of the household. I mean, the sacrifices that families make to get their tennis with their kid down the road. Um, yeah, it's. Um, I saw, I saw Pete came out yesterday. He doesn't come out very often with uh, in tennis. He came out yesterday with a nice tribute to Rod. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Okay, give me two more. We'll get maybe two people go, go back so to. Let's uh, see. Let's go with 2017, the great year that he had where he won the two slams. Number 17. 17. Um, this is a great one with. You know, he used to act up like so many junior tennis players. And his mother, um, she was interviewed. I've had, I've listened to interviews that were in Swiss German, had them translated. And um, obviously she's a Afrikaner as well. But uh, what did she say? What did she say? And she told her son when he was acting up that that's a chink in your armor. Meaning you look at the other side, you're showing your opponent that you're weak. Um, and you know, I, I heard that when I was a kid, but you know, a lot of those expressions have gone away. And so now you say that to someone, you know, that's a chink in your armor. You have to explain it to them, explain it to kids. And yeah, give me one more. You said you had 40 there, right? Let's see. I think I saw today that he had 310 weeks at number one. Let's go with 31. 31. With um, creative way that I come up with my numbers. Yeah, I read with, uh, you know, his wife's three years older and they started dating when they were at the Olympics. And she let him know, Andy Murray, you read the same story where you spent too much time playing video games. And she was the one who said, hey, you want to step it up? Uh, no time to play video games. I, when I think of video games with pro players, Mike Costa, a comedian, he spent time with his 
with uh, after he played at Illinois, and he tells a story where he's playing um, some computer, a tennis computer game. He's playing with Andy Roddick, and he asked Andy, "Who do you want to be?" He goes, "I guess I'll be myself." Hmm. Pretty intimidating. So, do you have any on that list that you want to? Is there a favorite for you? Well, in listening to it again, uh, it's a short podcast. Andy Fitzell, who started our podcast, his favorite was um, Roger made fun of a, a girl who could not speak Swiss German, a Turkish girl. And his mother found out about it. She had to, he had to apologize in writing and orally in Turkish. And that's like, that's like wow, Hall of Fame parents. Right. All, all fame parents. Um, with, yeah, I, I was asked, you know, if we put 40 together, you know, what would be my favorite? Um, it'd be hard to have a favorite. And there's, you know, one that's not from the 40 is I didn't know you're supposed to win in practice. I like that one. You know, you get, you know, I mean, um, Arush Ganji, maybe he'll listen to our podcast. I know you spent time with Arush Ganji. And I, you know, I think he was an 11-5 three years ago, and maybe he's still 11-5. But, you know, smart guy. You know, he's learned some skills. And um, call him out on that. There's so many, because I, I use that as an example. At one point, we were talking to him about, you know, you could do this and you could do that. And Davis Cup in India, we worked with this one kid who's on the Davis Cup team, and you could get there, and um, but just too stubborn. So the point being is, you've gone at least five years, five years of tournament play, where you have not served volley once. That's very common. It's very common. And you know, you, let me tell you that again. Let's say that one more time. Go get your notebook and write that down, and then you, and then you, you know, rainy days. Like, okay, we're in the in the classroom. Go around the room and say, okay, how long do you think that you've gone? There's a project player we're working with from Quebec, and it could be a really good player, and he's through juniors. He never went to the net, and he was a twelve and under champion. Never went to the net, and that's where we have I plus I plus I equals I information, ideas, and insights equal instincts. You know, we have, you know, I was working with three girls today, and for an hour we just did serve. We did uh, one bounce doubles, no poaching. Everybody comes in, ball's got to, you got to hit the ball eight times. And I call them in time after time, and I'm not really trying to beat them up, but, you know, if you were baseball players, you can't even catch. If you were soccer players, you can't even pass the ball back and forth. We're just asking you to play catch with a tennis ball. Spin the serve in, partner doubles, hit the return cross court. I'm trying to think of the gentleman's name, Oscar Wagner. Um, Brazilian. I spent time, uh, I would have guessed Argentina. But, but, but Oscar Wagner, tennis teaching.net, tennis teacher.net. I like how he says um, for a volley, find the ball, meaning footwork, find the ball, touch the ball. Ground stroke, find the ball, brush the ball. And, um, you know, even have players play mini tennis doubles. But, they, you know, if you don't start early teaching people the right way, um, they're going to have to be really, really good physically, really, really good mentally. And they can. 
There's, right. there's a, there's a, where the outliers comes in, where basically yeah. outliers physically. Or as you said, with sock competitively. So, yeah. You know, one of the, I tease and say, one of the dumbest coaches I've ever met, you know, you used to say, and I won't obviously mention anybody's name, but either you're a winner or you're not. And it's not just win on the scoreboard. I mean, you know, how, how do you live your life? Right. You know, do you live your life to win? And, you know, with Roger, he said yesterday, well, it started off, I just like to play tennis and be with my friends. But also he could add it. And then I found out I really like to win. And, you know, then what he did to win. Um, and, yeah, lots of records. Um, but, I, again, I think that um, it's more it's more than that. It's more than the records. I think it was really good that uh, he said, well, you're so happy to beat San Francisco's idol. He's, you know, so happy to pass 14. But, you know, that he's, you know, it's like being at a table and, you know, I've had enough to eat. Thank you very much. I don't need any more. Thank you. I'm grateful. What else you got? Roger Fetter. Uh, my favorite from yesterday actually was the, I'm going to misquote him, but I mean, it was basically, was it don't be sad that it's over, be happy that we had it or something along those lines. So I will think in that, I will think in those terms. I'm glad that we got all those monster matches. Actually, I should, we should blame him actually that we no longer have a, best of five, five set finals at the, uh, the master series because he and Nadal and, and they had some battles there in, in Rome, best of five. So then we switched it down to uh, best of three sets for the final. But, uh, other than that, thanks for an amazing career. Yeah. Ivan Lubicic, uh, Davis cup champion, Olympic medal, one over $10 million, number three in the world. Um, Here's some quick points from him. Outsmart your opponent. Love matches. Every step, every detail is important. Connection between life and sport. Basically, they're just the same. You've got to learn to have tools. Um, Players are ultimately responsible. There's different types of talent. You mentioned physical, technical, physical, technical, mental he said to be mentally strong, it's all about discipline. If you want to be mentally strong, just discipline. With, um, I, I really think that Lubacek helped him out tremendously, though. Huge. I mean, it basically, you know, mentioned earlier that you didn't think that he was uh, full-time, and I'm like, well, whatever he did in 2017, the backhand was better than ever. The return, he was able to come over it. Well, they, 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 they this is something some rackets. This is something for junior players. Is that they took uh, it took some time after Wimbledon, and there, um, there was an injury that needed to be addressed. But they just practiced. They didn't they didn't play any, any tournaments, and then that's where um, you know did so well. But five or six times, um, he, before starting with Lubacek, he had lost in Nadal. And then with working with Lubacek, five to six, five to five to six times he beat Nadal. I remember I watched him beat him in the Miami final. And he did say there was, you know, not to take anything away from Nadal, but he thought that if the conditions were normal, that during that time, Feder was ready to have a better match. That he thought he was going to be competitive at Roland Garros with 
yeah, so it was stay close to the baseline, hit tops and backhands, and then get to the net. Um, and you know, he said that at an older age, that you have to defend more when you slice. But yeah, David Law, uh, the tennis podcast. Um, I mean, that's uh, instead of listening to my notes, um, they, they played each other in a, in a future. So yeah, instead of my notes, you can actually listen to the podcast, but. Lubacek was 17 and the Dow was, excuse me, Lubacek was 17 and Federer was 15. They actually played in the tournament. They were at the same tournament. He said with Peter Lundgren, when he was coaching Federer, there's kind of an inside joke among people around Federer, is that, Peter, you could blow up because this guy should definitely be number one. And, you know, um, he did say that, you know, Roger, he wasn't really paying attention. He was into his own career and working on what he had to work on. But they were um, three matches apiece, and then Federer won the next 10. And then, of course, the question was, and I think Lubitschek handled it so, so well, he said, you know, what was the difference? And he said, a lot of these questions are for Roger. <laughs> um, but the, uh, yeah, I mentioned that again, fan favorite 19 times in a row. Um, with, um, yeah, I do think with Lubitschek, um a you know, war refugee with a friend of mine, uh, Alosha Pierchik, who's a coach at Miami. That's a story in itself. So, you know, the mindset of Lubacek uh, from Alosha, I understand that, um, you know, in Yugoslavia is divided, but from the former Yugoslavia, they were, they were primarily soccer players, but they ended up at a, 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 a tennis, um, in Italy, right? tennis academy in Italy, but I'd have to, I asked Alosha more about the details. He told me that years and years ago, but um, Lubacek, uh, he he tells a story where in Italy at an academy, he, he jumped from age like 14, where he was a good player, a solid player, but by the time he was 17. That was Piotti? Yeah, I, I think so. I'd have to double check, but I'll put that on your plate. I'm pretty the, sure I'm right on that. The, the, fa- the, fa- the fact checker that, uh, yeah, I think so. You got me thinking now. If Oscar Wagner is actually a Brazilian, now. I'm a little worried. I am going to guess that he's from Argentina, but he tells people he started tennis in Brazil. That he was instrumental with Bohr. He's he's a fun character. My I mean, Argentine friends are going to rip me for that. Yeah, yeah, you have to look that up. I could be wrong. Wrong. I think that's something to tell juniors all the time: is they, everybody over here, my mistake. And you know, I think that's what leaders have to do. If you're the lead coach over here, my mistake. And then at the end, and say, okay, run practice. I could have done this differently. I could have done this better. It's a mistake I made in the practice we had. Each of you got to tell me a mistake you made. And, of course, the mistake is they're not going to go home and write it down. They're not going to have reflective thought. They're not going to journal. Um, but, yeah, let's have a closing comment on, on Roger, the Hopman Cup. He won that um, three times. He won it with uh, Hingis. That was amazing, actually. And ben- Benchik. Ben- it was amazing to watch how starstruck all the players were, the female players were, to be playing doubles. I mean, even Serena, they, was, they just had an amazing moment. That was a great event. I mean, it's too bad that... Oh, Roger, Roger's a superstar with... Um, what's the name of the great player from France? Simone? Gil Simone? Gil Simone, yeah. So I'm at the US Open. I'm in the Players' Lounge. I'm just watching this. And, and you know... Um, Roger comes in and Simone approaches them and, you know, they're just kind of just watching. Next thing you know, 
he comes back like 10 minutes later and some of his, some of Simone's friends are getting their picture taken with Roger. It's, uh, I mean, he's yeah, bigger than life. I mean, but, um, yeah, I remember that year that he beat uh, Nadal in the final, my close friend, uh, Steve, the uh, poker player that you met, he was a huge diehard Federer fan. And Greg Levy and myself found out that Roger was practicing at the Yacht Club. We were able to get in. We took him out there. And I've never seen the guy starstruck. And he took a picture. He couldn't even speak. He couldn't even say a word. So it's a uh, guy was already in his mid-30s, and he was acting like a, like a schoolgirl. But basically, it was incredible watching him. Uh, and the guy was so classy. I mean, the guy, my other friend, went with... Uh, you know, tickets from the 2009 French Open. And I just randomly uh, jumped in and said, that was a pretty good year. And he goes, he was the best year. So it was a... Here's a Beatle moment for me. I was at the US Open. They have the Mercedes building with, you know, there's all glass windows and you see these different uh, Mercedes being on, on display. And I'm just checking my phone. And then hundreds of people, I mean, hundreds are running towards me, screaming. And I'm going to go, well, they're, they're getting closer. They're coming towards me. This is 100% wrong. What is this about? So I, I just look over my shoulder, and it was Roger in the Mercedes uh, building inside the window just waving like this, you know. And uh, it's like, yeah, huge. Um, that could be the – we'll be lucky if we ever see a rock star at the level of uh, – I mean – Never say never. I never thought anybody would be at Borg's level. In, uh, and here you see Roger. Well, I think with Borg, uh, there's long hair. It was, it was like Beatlemania. It was the teenagers. But I think all ages, all generations um, love the Fed. Right. So let's see. Let's hope the... I do, yeah, I do hope for our podcast... Um, that we've made some points. That's our goal is to make some points that help people with their, their tennis game. I think one of the one that I could repeat is uh, Roger Fetter. I didn't know you're supposed to win in practice with, uh, I mean, go on and on. Um, but yeah, podcast number one, one, one listeners. Uh, thanks for hanging in there. Andre, thanks for helping out with this. And thanks uh, for having me. Yeah. Adios amigos. Roger Federer.